You're listening to the podcast for grain merchandisers by grain merchandisers. Join us in our good humored attempt to serve as a voice of reason in an industry fraught with misconceptions and half truths. And now, from deep in America's heartland, this is the Elevator's Cut. Welcome back to another episode of The Elevator's Cut. I'm one of your hosts, Jason Wheeler. And I'm your other host, Roger Gaddis. And today we have a special guest. All of our guests are special. This one's extra special. Extra special because uh, he's he's been a part of both of our careers and our lives for uh, decades now. We're at that age yeah. we can say we've done things for decades, and this is one of those things. A good thing for decades. <laughs> That's right. And very obviously he's uh he's well educated and his uh his accent will will uh really put you at ease to know that i mean he's he's very well educated this is dr mckenzie we have on the line he was roger and i both of our college professor of grain merchandising uh education and basis trading and all that stuff we we learned we learned it sitting in his class. So, Dr. McKenzie, we thank you for taking the time and joining us today. No, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm a, a big fan of the podcast, and this is a great opportunity for me too. All right. So, let's start off the audience. We, we've kind of given uh, the audience our our take on you, but uh, let, let's let's go down the the uh, CV, if you will, and tell us a little bit about your background and and how you came to be in. Uh, academia with this specific area of concentration on futures and options and grain merchandising. Yeah, sure. Well, like you, you already mentioned my accent. I am from England originally. And, is, that uh, England, is that England, Arkansas or? <laughs> no, England, UK. Yeah, England, UK. Oh, okay, I got you. All right. <laughs> and you know, it's funny you mention accents because I think I've told you guys this story before, but every year we get evaluated on our classes by the students. And one of the things they evaluate you on is your spoken English. And ironically, I always get one of the worst uh, evaluations <laughs> on that in the whole, in the whole, uh, in the whole department. So, you know, the, there's a bit of irony there. Um, but, but, uh, but no, so yeah, I, I'm originally from England, uh, a town called South Shields in the Northeast of England. And um, I did an undergrad degree uh, in economics and finance at uh, University of Dundee in Scotland. Then I went on and did a master's degree in finance and economics at the University of Stirling, again in Scotland. And really, I think it was at uh, Stirling University where I really sort of got my eyes opened a little bit about futures markets. And in one of the classes that we had there, uh, there was a sort of a film documentary on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and that sort of stoked my interest a little bit from that. But, you know, I never thought I would end up here with that is my job, in a sense. So after Sterling University, it's, uh, well, an important point here is I actually met my now wife at Sterling University, who happens to be an American. And so, in effect, that's how I ended up here across this side of the pond. And she was doing her master's degree in psychology there while I was doing my master's in finance, as I mentioned. And, you know, one of us had to move. So she either had to come over uh, to England or I had to come over here. And, you know, I guess I guess I was uh, more willing to do the move. Maybe I was more motivated. 
And so I ended up here and uh, happened to start doing a PhD in agricultural economics at North Carolina State University. Reason why I chose there again is down to my wife. She has a lot of, she has a lot of the the, the sort of uh, building blocks as to what happens in my life, if you want to think of it that way. She happened to be doing her PhD in psychology at UNC Chapel Hill. So when I came over here, I had to be obviously where she was, and uh, she said, "Well, do a PhD in ag econ because you want to get into academia. You want to be a professor." And NC State has a really good reputation in ag economics, so why don't you go there? So again, I followed her advice, and that's what I ended up doing. Uh, specialized in my PhD dissertation on commodity futures, and then the first job out of the um, out of that program was here at the University of Arkansas, and I've never really looked back since. So, since you've been at the University of Arkansas, you've you've ended up there. There's a lot of, I guess futures and options professors, right? Pretty much every school or land grant school for sure has, uh, has a futures and options class. Uh, but your, your uh, method of teaching is, is different. Obviously, Roger and I have been through it and I know you've, you know, worked closely with white commercial and I, I guess I'd call it a more practical uh, way of teaching it than most, most other universities we come across. Can you speak, how, how did you, how did you get to to that place, and uh, and and you know how do how do you see you how do you see yourself as different from those other uh, standard futures and options professors? Yeah, good questions. I mean, you're right. Every major land grant university has a commodity futures and options component to it, and they do the intro type futures and options classes. But I think you'll find that uh, most places, if not all of them, have more of the perspective towards the farmer side of using these sort of contracts and marketing. And uh, my eyes were really opened here at the University of Arkansas by two people in particular, uh, Glenn Hardy and his son, Scott Hardy, who you, know, you guys are obviously very familiar with. Um, with the white commercial connections that they had, uh, they really introduced me to the world of grain merchandising and to the white commercial folks. And from that point on, I started going to white commercial conferences and learning exactly how basis trading worked. And, you know, one of the things we're trying to do here at the university, we call it industry-informed learning. And so you're right, we're trying to do stuff which is really applied and stuff that students will be able to learn here at the university, get the building blocks, then go out into the industry and at least have the awareness of how markets actually work at the merchandising level. So, you know, I think it makes sense to do it that way, too, because as you guys know, most of the actual volume that takes place in the markets on the hedging side is at the merchandising level. And so to not understand how that all works seems somewhat, um, somewhat redundant if you don't learn that. And also the jobs happen to be there too, right? So again, career-wise, this is something which I think is really good for our students. Yeah, I think that's something that that we would see a lot. I know when I was in in, in school up on the hill, we, you know, you'd have a lot of. Um, I'm generalizing here, but you see a lot of the farm farm kids from East Arkansas coming over, and they would they were in classes with us. But then generally speaking, depending on what corn prices we're doing, they're probably going to go back home and farm. And that information, you know, the futures and options thing, you know, may or may not be put to use. Whereas if you have someone, student coming out of the program, going into the industry, going into the grain industry, 
they can put that to use right away. And, you know, part of that is, you know, like right now, the some of the uh, what we would call level one courses that white commercial offers is the exact same thing the university is putting out right now to their students. So the students are taking the same stuff that professionals in the industry are taking. And when they come out of your program, they've got you, you know that while I go to the building blocks, they have a, a leg up on a lot of people that are even in the industry right now of understanding how green merchandising works, or I should say how it should work. Uh, and, and there's been a high demand for, for those students. And, you know, I kind of curious as what your take is on that, um, this, this partnership, if you will, between uh, the, the academic world and the commercial world. What, what kind of changes have you seen over time? Uh, with regards to what students are, are doing or, or, or looking for when they leave, and then conversely, what is the industry looking for out of the students as they leave? Yeah, good questions again. I mean, as you all know, we have over the years built relationships with several uh, companies in the grain industry. Um, so, you know, as well as the companies which are part of the white commercial group, uh, we have some of the bigger guys as well, like Consolidated Grain and Barge, typically come onto campus. Uh, likewise, we've now got Andersons coming, uh, Schooler as well. And quite a few of our students have, you know, either done internships with those companies or actually gone on and got jobs with them since. What those guys look for, I mean, again, I don't think they necessarily need somebody with all the knowledge base. They're not looking for somebody to uh, come, in, come out of school knowing everything on basis trading and hedging and futures. But I think they like the fact, again, that at least the students from the university here have some awareness of how things work in, in that context. And, and, and also that our students are just motivated and excited by that sort of area. And, and so again, that's what they want. They want somebody who's excited to get into the industry, someone who's motivated. So again, I don't think from their point of view, uh, GPA is necessary. I shouldn't say this as an academic, right? But GPA <laughs> is not necessarily at the very top of their list. I mean, they want smart people, but everybody who goes to universities could be ranked as at least fairly smart, right? And I think what they want is, as I say, motivated people, but people who are also willing to learn. And I think the best way for students, if they're looking for career paths in the industry, is to try to get internships with these sorts of companies. And they're more than willing to take people on over the summer and you get to learn different aspects of what merchandising is. And you know, I always tell students this when I'm trying to get them interested, I say, well, you know, if you really hate it, that's fine, choose something different. But until you actually do the internship, you don't really know one way or the other, whether you really like it or not. And mm -hmm. the best way to find out is to get some practical experience and do an internship. Yeah. So the I, I know you mentioned a, a few of the companies that that come there and, and recruit students. And and that's, you know, when Roger and I went through, no, we didn't get anybody recruiting. That's why that's why we're we're, you know, we didn't get to the top of the field right away. But now the kids are coming out and they're just uh, they're blowing and going. But but uh, the reason they are is because. Well, like we said earlier, you, you kind of teach that side of the business where no one else does. But we, they also get these professional certifications like Roger's talking about that people are actually getting. So that so um, just real quickly about how many people a year go through your 
the level one course. So the, the white commercial level one certification course, how many students do you normally get through there? Yeah, typically. I mean, you guys are actually helping, right? You're actually all teaching that class this semester for me. Um, we, we usually uh, get, I would say if we look at both the spring and the summer, we're probably getting between 30 to 40 students going through that program. And, you know, a certain percentage of them will then actually get certified if they're successful in it. Right. So you got 30 to 40 in the level. And then you also offer the level two course, which is kind of advanced merchandising uh, to, to people who get through that and still are interested in, in going more. And how many, what do you say, like 10 or so, 10 to 12? Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair number. I mean, over the years, it's been fairly consistent between 10, 12. I think 15 was probably the max that we have. And to me, that's actually a good number because it's a real hands-on case study type class. And again, you guys have come in and Scott's helped me over the past on that. And so, you know, we try to give as many practical industry examples as possible, have guest speakers come in, go on sort of like site location visits to different uh, firms. So again, that's sort of a, a pretty intense class to, to, to give to the students. Yeah, then and that's what our, I kind of wanted to, to put out there, you know, for the people listening to this episode. You know, you got a lot of a lot of folks from other big companies too that maybe haven't quite discovered what you're doing yet. That probably should, you know. You're, you know, have people always you call them the ABCDs or the whatever you want to want to call them. Which, uh, so you got some big big ones coming, but the ones that haven't, you know, they're there's some real talent, some people that are really interested. By the time they're in that. Uh, that final class you do, like you said, that's kind of advanced and hands-on and everything. These are some really serious candidates that the the benefit to the industry uh, company that's that's hiring them is a lot of the stuff they got out of the way. You know, a yeah. lot of the train and not like you said, it's not that they're some expert basis traders or anything like that, but they get it. And a, a lot of these companies, some of the biggest purchasers of our Art of Grain merchandising book are these big companies. And when they hire somebody, the first thing they do is hand them the Art of Grain merchandising and say, read it. Well, it's been the basis of their education for the last two years that they've come through your deal. Mm -hmm. So they, they, I guess, can skip ahead some on the training uh, when they've come. And through. Dr. McKenzie, you kind of said it earlier that, you know, they're looking for smart people. And if there ever was a litmus test on if someone was smart, it's understanding basis math. Like I said, if you, if you can if you can conquer that concept, you can go far in life. It, someone should write a Dr. Seuss book about it. But the uh, I, I will say too though, and I'll ask you this because you you've you've obviously seen it as well. But when you know the times that Jason and I have come down there and, and talked with the level two class or helped with it, I've noticed a, a, a I would call it a distinct demographic shift. Of your of the makeup of that class, uh, I know for sure from when you know 20 years ago when Jason and I were down there. But can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, is it is is level two is not just a bunch of farm kids anymore, is it? No, that's that's really true. I mean, and I will say the students who get to level two, I mean, they're what what I would call self-selecting. Obviously, they've decided they want to continue in this path, and they've already gone through two classes. So you know, those guys are real motivated. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we get kids now from, you know, towns and cities, uh, people who are just interested in agriculture but don't have an agricultural background for whatever reason, whether it's, uh, you know, they've heard about environmental things or just they're interested in food, how, how, how the marketing system works. 
But all of these things, whatever their motivation to come into the program in the first place is, I at least like to see that I'm opening their eyes as to how grain markets work. So at that point, it's then up to them if they want to take that and run with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, uh, other than, you know, not having a class full of kids from rice country from East Arkansas in there is that, you know, like you said, from the cities, but, you know, kids that would have been traditionally, say, business college kids or, you know, just the male female makeup has changed quite a bit. You know, there's 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 you know, last time we've been down there, you definitely get more interest across across the full spectrum of the students. And that, that's been really cool to see. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I mean, as well, I should say it's across disciplines, like you said. So we get kids from the business school. But also, also from like poultry science and, and things like yeah. that, too, crop soil science. And, you know, some of the students actually who've come out of the program have gone on to work for poultry companies like yeah. Tyson Foods, hire quite a few of the kids as well. And obviously, you know, risk management, buying corn, soybean meal is, uh, is really important to those guys, too. Absolutely. So I kind of flip it to the other side real quick. Obviously, the you know what the industry folks are looking for and they've they've been able to find with with your students in that program but what are so we have a lot of people that that aren't that listen that just run country elevators out there and they're trying to get good young talent and you know maybe they're not going to come to career day at a university that you know or anything like that but they they would like to know so your students who have a have a decent background under them and have a a bachelor's degree or, 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 you know, I don't know. So I know some of them are master students too, that, that take that course, but, um, you know, coming out of school, they're being recruited by these big companies. What are they looking for now? The students nowadays coming out of school, what are they looking for? What are salary ranges or anything, you know, uh, just so that somebody that's listening from a grain elevator knows, okay, this is what it's going to take to interest people in my, my position. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if salaries is the most important thing for students. And I think they're aware that, you know, what they start at is not necessarily what they're going to end up with at the end of their careers. And so I think to, to get an education and be actively shown how things work, I think that's critical. So today's students, they really want to be sort of hands-on and, 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 and be shown exactly each step of the process and how everything works within a company. So I think actually that lends itself well to the smaller grain companies that you work with, that they can actually show students the whole big picture and the students get to see the big picture rather than necessarily going to a bigger firm and being like, one small cog in the component of the overall process, if you want to think of it that way. Um, Salary-wise, though, I mean, obviously, people are going to still be incentivized by what people pay you. So uh, there's, a, there's a range. I mean, I think anywhere from mid-40s all the way up to the 60s for the master's students. I think that's the sort of starting salary with, with which our students are getting coming out of the program. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, I, I know we've talked about it before, but I, I, you know, people of like, you know, Roger and I's age and, and older, it's like, well, 
how do you get you have to just pay them you know what what's everybody paying how much do i have to pay what's it going to cost and you know as much as maybe it doesn't make as much sense to us because that's not how we were programmed or, or other people that's the truth is hey they get it they get starting salaries not the end-all be-all there's more to it and they figure hey if i if i can go somewhere where i can be successful and really be good my the money will come mm -hmm. you know and uh so yeah you're right and, and roger and i've talked with students coming out that are considering different stuff and it's it's for me personally I, I shouldn't speak for roger but for me personally i'm like what are you talking about? you just find out how who's paying the most and you go there right <laughs> but no they don't think that at all and, and you know uh students i'll just you know again as a plug for the university of arkansas but you know in our industry i mean over the years obviously these kids coming out let's call them kids students or adults just like us but you know we run into them all the time they're all over the country working for big elevators bigger in companies small ones all over the resellers uh like you said schooler had a bunch and a bunch of those guys have gone on to migrate to to other resellers around the country, a bunch of headquartered here in Kansas City. And so, you know, we, we come in across these folks time and time again. And while money is a, is a big part of it, uh, I've also talked to some of these folks that have been out of school two, three, maybe four years, and they love the challenge for the idea of being able, like you said, the full merchandising seat, not, you know, origination's fine over here or, or operations is fine over there. But when they get to see the whole thing, of course, it's a bigger headache, but it's like the headache to reward ratio is, is in line, you know, and when they get to see that they can be a part of making the big decisions for the company, that seems to be a big motivator for students these days. And I just wanted to see if that's something you would agree with there, Dr. McKenzie. No, I agree 100 percent. And I think what companies need to show students is what is the vision that they have for that student going down the line? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do they see them contributing to the company? and show them a path where they can progress and move up and you know take more and more decisions over time and participate at higher level management decisions. I think that's what students want to be able to see. At least they don't have to have it immediately, but at least see that path. Yeah. And that's huge. And that's and I think sometimes from the older generations uh, uh, run these businesses, merchandisers or ownership sometimes if, if they don't have the expectation if that's what the students are looking for, they were raised up as just saying, just work hard and by golly, when it's your time to do something else, I'll tell you. And students right now do not buy into that at all. They pay your dues, man. Yeah. Just get in yeah. there and shovel it. Don't ask, just I'll tell you later. I, that, that, that door's closed. I mean, that's, that's not the way this stuff works right now. And, and again, the money thing, I think the understanding is it will come, but this is the whole, the, you nailed it, Dr. McKees, the path forward. That's, I hear that over and over again. Show me what I'm going to be doing in three years, five years, 10 years. What's, and it puts a lot of business owners or merchandisers uh, on their on their heels because they might not have thought that far ahead about what's going on because it is can be a repetitive business. Oh, we just buy grain every year, we spread it and sell it and just do the same thing. Well, if you put a little more thought into it, that can be your differentiating aspect of your company for these new employees. Yeah, for sure. And and uh, like like you were saying earlier, it's these small, you know, country elevator. I hate to say small, but you know, country elevator that doesn't have a ton of employees or anything. That's a that's a huge benefit they can have over a large company. You know, if you know some of the companies you say come down there, they can't show them how they 
how they, you know, hire them out of school and eventually they'll be, you know, upper management or running the company. But a, a grain elevator with four employees can say, well, you know, you, you, you know, do this and this and here's what all we do. And you can be involved in all of it. It uh, it really is a, a you know, a, a advantage they have uh, to to getting these students into into those roles. I uh, I, I do want to uh, shift. Yeah, I, I don't want to get away. Shift back to something uh, we discussed earlier, just about the academics versus uh, versus the other. So, just a couple quick questions I have for you. You can take as long as you want, but uh, so why does every time I see a basis chart from some sort of academic, it's there's no spreads on it, and it's like ten years long. <laughs> yeah, again, I think it goes back to the point that in other places. Uh, the whole concept of teaching this type of stuff is is price oriented, and so it's from the point of view of a farmer, and they're not really thinking about basis trading or spreads. Uh, they're just looking at well, how does basis at any point in time impact the price I get to sell at? So it's always a price that they're thinking on. So I think that's part of where that's coming from, and again, just I think part of it is just not being exposed. To how merchandising works in in the industry. I mean, if you come from an academic program where prices is the only thing that was taught, or you know, focusing on prices to manage uh, and, and managing prices with risk in terms of hedging, that's what you're going to teach yourself, and that's what you're going to focus on. Yeah, I uh, well, I just they put those together, and you know, they look for these huge spikes in it, and of course, the huge spikes come when you roll into an inverse, right? So it go. We roll from July to SEP, and there's a dollar and a half inverse, and you went from even one day to a dollar and a half over the next day. Well, the basis didn't, I mean, that didn't really change. So if you're thinking about things in terms of price, it didn't really change, you know, but now they've got this point on a chart that people can go back to, well, by God, I remember back in 2000 and whatever, it, and there it is on the on the chart where it went to year of nine. Yeah, <laughs> where it went to $1.50 over. And I don't know, it just it just skews things. And because uh, like you said, it's like, it's not really from a place of understanding merchandising. It's just throwing some numbers around. And I don't know. So people think, well, you know, it went to dollar and a half over that one year. So I'm able to go to dollar and a half over at harvest this year when I saw so do my HDA and get, well, it doesn't go to dollar half over at, you know, in, in November, you know, <laughs> but anyways, uh, I digress, but it, it's a frustrating. So I know you, you kind of been our, uh, you bridge that gap for us a little bit in that you understand our side of things and most of the academics don't. So I, I shouldn't, uh, obviously you're you're trying your hard so you told me a story one time though dr mckenzie about um i guess futures and options professors have like a conference you guys have or yeah, they have meetings occasionally is that right oh yeah we we have we have a number of them throughout the year so you know uh often there's there's times where all these academics teaching this stuff all get together and they present their research and talk about markets and everything okay you told me years ago I don't know if you even remember this, but you told me years ago you you at one of those presented or had one of your uh, research assistants present the uh, uh, pre-spreads for a, like a grain elevator doing pre-spreads. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. And, and yeah, that that stoked some interest. And I think it was something that nobody had actually heard about even. So that that puts that into perspective again as to what 
what most academics focuses on. Yeah, that's. I just thought that was wild to me. Here's a here's a room full of literal professors that teach people how to use the futures and options market and the concept of a commercial setting a spread ahead Before of time, a, roll day. a pre-spread. It was just like it's something they never even thought of. It's just wild to me. So, anyways. Well, and, and another example along those lines is that I think what's important when you're teaching risk management. You have to know exactly what the risk is that the business that you're interested in is dealing with. And so the way that you hedge differs. So yeah, if you're talking about it yeah. from a farmer's point of view, it is different from a country grain elevator, right? And, and sometimes academics tend to just generalize on some of these strategies. So for example, I've heard people at conferences talk about uh, examples they're using and they're talking about elevators and they're saying, okay, so they're buying corn from farmers, uh, you know, in the pre-harvest window to the elevator, buying the corn is like an input for them. Well, how do you deal with input price risk? Well, you would set a long hedge prior <laughs> right. to buying the corn. And, and, and so, you know, you get this sort of, uh, this sort of uh, analysis which is they're totally skewed from reality because right. they're not understanding exactly how markets and how industry works. Uh, or, or they're really being detailed and explaining how Texas hedging works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's just a wild thing. And I think a lot of it is, you know, in, in getting to, to know you and, and other, I, I think there's a lot of inertia in it. Like, well, when I went through school and I got my PhD, I didn't, you know, learn this. Now, to your credit, Dr. McKenzie, I, I, I doubt, you know, people taught you basis trading and spread management from a commercial when you got your PhD. But you, you know, despite that, you still learn it because, you know, it's something that's done and you, you've taught it. But, but most folks just like to kind of stay in their lane there and, and uh, not have to learn a new concept. So, I guess. you know, kind of dovetail, uh, dovetailing in with that, Dr. McKenzie, what, you know, speaking of, of research and what you've learned and, and, and researched over the years to come to now, well, research wise, where are you at right now? What what kind of things have you done recently? Uh, because some people might listen to basis and, and, and spreads and merchandise and think what kind of research goes into that? I think it's fascinating. Uh, so can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you're what you've done or what you're working on uh, coming coming down the pike, so to speak? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, over the years, I've, I've spent a lot of time researching on how uh, futures and options prices react to government report information. So like you're all familiar with the WASD reports and so forth. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and so, you know, just looking at how different markets behave and react to that information. And, you know, my results that I found when I've done this research, and this is in line with what other people have found, so it's not just me, but what you tend to find is if you look at options, you can, you know, you can use options to get a gauge as to what volatility is going to be in a marketplace. And so what you tend to find is that as you uh, get towards the release of a report like a WASD, then you get increases in volatility up to the time of the release. Then when the information is released, the volatility tends to, to go down. So it's like the report removes uncertainty from the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And then on the futures side, you've got a lot of analysts, and you probably know this, from different firms who make guesses as to what the numbers are going to be in the WASD. 
So based on those numbers versus what actually is released by the government, prices tend to respond to that information. And, and so, you know, if the actual WASD is more bullish than was expected, then prices then react upwards and vice versa. So I've done a lot of that sort of stuff. And I mean, I think part of what my research shows is the importance of those government reports. I don't know if you remember, but when we had problems in the government at one time, uh, they actually uh, they actually did not release the WASD one month. And, and so at that point in time, what happened in markets? Well, you didn't get the typical reactions, obviously, because there was no report to react to. So again, that, that sort of underlies how markets need information at least to align themselves and to react to where they should be. Uh, currently, what I'm looking to do, and this is something that we're hoping to do in our new center, is to look at things from a behavioral finance point of view to some extent. And this, you know, this is something I've always been interested in. Uh, my wife is a psychologist. So over the years, we've had debates about you know, do people behave rationally? And in the traditional economic models, we assume that people are very rational and they're utility maximizers and all this good stuff. Whereas psychologists for a long time have realized that people have what are behavioral biases. So they're not always uh, behaving in an optimal manner, the way economic models would suggest. So I'm sort of interested to see where those two disciplines intersect and in particular, look at it in terms of grain markets and thinking about farmers in particular and how they market stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I like to read a lot of stuff and, and one book I'm going to, you know, I don't, I don't want to uh, like talk for too long on this, but I, I would pitch this book, which is a really interesting book. It's by a guy called Dan, Daniel Kahneman and it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he actually won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And this book sort of encapsulates all of his theories. And what he really does is explain how people uh, divert from this optimal economic path, uh, rational, rational path. And he talks about all the ways that people can behave uh, in this sort of behaviorally biased way. So in particular, what he found was that people uh, often, when they're looking to make a decision, they look at what are called references or reference prices. And what he said was that people find a reference price and they look at whether they're going to gain above that reference or lose and go below it. And he, he thinks that people uh, really despise losing more than they like winning. So if you think about equal amounts where you might win on a gamble versus you might lose, people are more averse to the loss if it's of the same magnitude. And so I'm trying to think about this in terms of farmer marketing contexts. And if we think about farmers, when they're looking to market, say, in the pre-harvest window, they've got a, in their mind a price which they think is a good, good price to sell at, right, no matter what the market's currently doing. And, and so what their reference, I think, taken from this literature is they might be looking at what was the market high last year. Or, you know, if you've gone several years where you had high prices, they're very averse to wanting to sell in the current time period if prices are at a lower level. So they're referencing back to those high levels. And anything they sell below that level, they take it as a loss to themselves. 
and they're really a, a averse to wanting to do that. So you tend to see farmers like uh, not want to sell and they hold on to the grain longer than they maybe should and not do the optimal risk management strategies because they're referencing everything against market highs, say. Mm. And, and, and sort of along these lines, too, there's a thing that he uh, talks about, this Kahneman guy, called regret bias. And I think this plays into marketing as well. So that's where if you as a marketer say you pull the trigger and you do sell, you might be worried about missing out on even higher prices. And so, in effect, you might refuse to pull that trigger because you're like, oh, no, I can't, I can't sell now. I'm gonna, the market hasn't topped. I'm going to wait a little bit longer. And what's driving that is what we're calling this regret bias because it's a really strong uh, psychological emotion. If you do something and then you find that you regret that action afterwards, then you feel really, really bad about it. So it, it has a big impact on people's decisions. And again, I think you see this in like market rallies, right, where people mm -hmm. keep hanging on or they remove, say, targets or something like that as the market touches the targets. Yeah. So again, I think this is all getting to this sort of regret bias and this reference pricing stuff. And so I think there's ways that maybe uh, in an extension type format, you can identify what these potential biases are and try to educate and guide people. Well, you know, you should at least think about this. You maybe are biased on your decisions because of these things and try and nudge them to do the right thing. And I think about white commercial in particular, because I think you guys do this. I don't think you think about it necessarily in terms of trying to remove reference prices. But in effect, that's what you do when you talk about profit margin hedging. You're trying to remove price itself from the picture on the marketing side for farmers. And in a sense, that's removing reference prices and making people think more optimally, what are current market conditions? Does it make sense for me to actually set forward contracts or hedge or whatever it might be? Yeah. I think a regret bias would be a fantastic name for a coffee shop in a small town. That's it. That's exactly what that is. And, and but you're absolutely right. In, in in academic terms, that's what we see. What we've seen out here in industry. Um, a great snapshot. If you want to see the mind of the producer out there right now, is Ag Twitter. You can go on there and, and see see all this stuff in real time happening. And this is. And, and, you know, most of our listeners that work at Green Elevators, they, they know this, especially if they're originators. They I, I can hear them all nodding their head. They say, yep. Yes, that's the problem. It's what if it goes up and, and I can't sell now because now is lower than this other price point. And it, it's this is weird. Sometimes can be. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it can be a self-defeating anchoring effect type thing. And so, so uh, I think it's fascinating. I hope you dig a lot of stuff up out of this because I know this is a. You know, we, we make the joke that, you know, universities should teach a farmer psychology class if you're going to go in the grain business. And I think this sounds like exactly yeah, what you're right. doing. <laughs> yeah, you can't yeah, understand I, uh, farm marketing without some psychology. Yeah, absolutely. And what you what you yeah. said about people acting rationally. I mean, yeah. everything you said is just spot on to to, uh, you know, from the originator standpoint of the of the struggles. I, what, the thing I think is interesting um the reference price deal because you said people are averse to losing money and that's that's obvious you know that's that's true for sure but the thing is when but like you're saying and i think that's that's really the the twist on the grain thing is it that is true but i think the reference price you know in that case to lose money your reference price should be a break-even number but that's not what what farmers set their reference price as 
And so they feel like they're losing money, even though they're making money, you know? And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. That's good stuff. Yeah, I would say, I mean, just to think about whether we're all susceptible ourselves to these sort of biases. I think if you think about it in the context of, say, you know, you bought yourself a house. And would you then say 10 years down the road, you've got to move, you've got to sell your house. Would what you paid for that house originally impact your decision on whether you sell or not? It shouldn't if you're economically rational. It should just be current market conditions. But I would argue most of us would still look at what price we originally bought at and reference that as to whether we're actually going to sell or not. And whether, you know, if the market's tanked since, wouldn't you feel some pain selling at a lower level? Yeah, yeah. And and, and what you just described is, is my, my watered-down Arkansas version of that I call the garage sale mindset. I have this conversation with my wife anytime we have a garage sale. What you what you're selling something in your garage sale for, you've anchored it to probably what you paid for it or what you think it's worth. Well, guess what? The market for what that thing is worth now is probably substantially less. And you know, you wonder why, ah, we had this garage sale, it didn't sell anything. I wonder why. <laughs> Everything's a quarter. <laughs> oh man. So you, you mentioned the, the center you're, you're doing, what, what's that called? And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to uh, talk a little on that. So we have uh, a new center at the university, and it's called the Fryer Price Risk Management Center of Excellence. And obviously the name behind that is it's the, the money which was given to us to endow this center came from Dr. Ed Fryer and his wife, uh, Michelle. Uh, they are, you know, great friends of the university. They're both alums of the Bumpers College. And Ed, actually, he was um, the professor who taught this stuff, a couple of professors before I got here. So he's very familiar with commodity futures and options. And, and he also had uh, interactions with White Commercial over the years, too. I, I'm sure you know that. And uh, what Ed did was, you know, he's a unique individual, super smart. He was successful in both academia and in the private business world, set up his own poultry company. And, you know, I don't know about you, but... From my perspective, most of the academics I know, they're good at academics, but they'd be hopeless in, you know, private business. And I would definitely be one of those guys. So so hats <laughs> off to him that he was successful in both fields. Yeah. And he was able to make a good go of that. And then he gave us money here back to start this center. And very, very generous. We got uh, $10 million to start the center up, which means we have uh, on annual $450,000 approximately we can use to spend doing research, teaching, outreach, all these sorts of things. So we're going to do lots of um, industry-type conference work. We'll give stipends to students to get them motivated in this sort of area. Uh, we'll, we'll do industry outreach events. We'll have a website where we'll try to put up some tools. So again, from the farmer's point of view, We'd like to try to help farmers to make their risk management decisions and look at, you know, what they're doing on the crop insurance side with forward contracting, how those interplay. So there's lots of different things that we can do research on thanks to this uh, center endowment. Awesome. That sounds pretty helpful. I, it seems like there's a push out there in, in some, I wouldn't say all land grant universities, but in, in several that, uh, that there's this, there's this desire to to have more extension uh, 
presence on farm grain marketing. It could be for other ones. I, don't, I can only speak to this one, but talking to different folks at, around the country, there's a kind of a, a, I don't know, renewed vigor, I guess. That's the thing. But the, the deal has always been how do you pair incentivizing the extension agent or the program with getting down to the nuts and bolts of the individual farmer level? And it sounds like what y'all are working on at the Fryer Center is kind of a, a more of an umbrella approach. If you can get these concepts down, then you can work you know, locally with your individual uh, trusted partner as a farmer to get this stuff taken care of. And I, I think that's got a lot of promise to it. And I'm kind of excited for what you guys are working on. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're really excited. And, and, and one of the nice things as well is there won't just be me doing this stuff anymore. We're hiring two new people. Uh, we've already got one person on board. And then probably about a year down the road, we'll get a, another faculty member hired to this center. And we'll be able to have postdocs work as well for us. So we're going to have a lot more uh, bodies working on this sort of stuff. All right. Very cool. Well, we are getting at the edges of our, our time constraints here for, for the short show. rows, as they say. Yeah. So a, a couple of uh, unexpected questions I'm going to hit pass. I'm going to pelt you with right now. Just uh, lightning round here. You ready for this, Dr. McKenzie? Yeah, shoot. All right. Um, in, in all your years of teaching at the University of Arkansas, grain merchandising, your best student was? <laughs> no, that's a loaded <laughs> question, right? <laughs> okay. Can I say that one, that one. Roger? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, there have been lots of, lots of good ones. Smarter than me come through because I've gotten to work with them um, over the years. But, uh, Anyway, okay, and, and the other question is, how are you incorporating critical race theory into the grain merchandising business? That one I need to think a little <laughs> bit more on, I think. Yeah, I'm going to... I didn't that appreciate my, that me We're trying that to keep question. things apolitical. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. So, uh, anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Two rhetorical questions to, uh, you know, to, be, to, you know, just give you a hard time at the end of this. But, anyways, we appreciate... Uh, Appreciate you taking time with us. Yeah, I think this is something we've really wanted cool to do for there. a long time. Uh, obviously, you've you've played a big role in both of our lives, and uh, and this is a very very small way of saying thank you <laughs> for that. Uh, and we continue to hope to to, to repay you with the gratitude and thanks over the years to come. So, uh, but again, uh, Dr. McKenzie, thank you so much for taking the time today to visit with us and let our listeners hear how things uh, sound on the academic side. For sure. And uh, if anybody did have questions after hearing this or want to talk to you more about research or the center or anything like that, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Oh, yeah, they can they can uh, find my email and phone contact numbers on our university website and okay. just to, to contact me directly, I would say. OK, yeah. and that's the University of Arkansas Dell Bumpers College of Agriculture, Food and Life Sciences. So. And if you have any Aggie problems, department. you guys know how to get a hold of me and Roger at, yeah. at Elevators Cut and do all that. And we can we we'll can send up a big whoop pig suey and we'll get figured out. So. Yes, sir. So we're going to call the hogs to end it here. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks. Thanks again. And whoop pig suey. Uh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. As always, thanks for downloading and listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with folks you know in the business. And if you'd like to reach out anytime about anything at all or have any show ideas, you can always find us on Twitter at Elevators Cut. Follow us there, tweet at us, DM us, and we'll always respond. 
Until next time, for Roger, I'm Jason. For Jason, I'm Roger. Thanks for listening to The Elevator's Cut. Help! Oh.